this this comic will make more sense to you later. I usually do that. If you haven't come to any of my classes, I usually try to put something up on the screen that is maybe relevant, but I think funny at least. It might have nothing to do with the topic whatsoever, um, <laughs> but in this case, it does. Uh, I'm going to begin with the colic for the day of Pentecost. Uh, it's clearly not Pentecost Sunday. Uh, but I thought that this prayer uh, speaks to what I'm trying to get across today. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, who on this day didst open the way of eternal life to every race and nation by the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, shed abroad this gift throughout the world by the preaching of the gospel, that it may reach to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the same Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, uh, the, the scripture passage that I want to, I'm going to read and it, it'll frame the, the topic. Uh, I won't address it directly right away, but it, it, it sort of frames the topic. This is um, from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Remember that David has had an affair with uh, Bathsheba and uh, sent Bathsheba's husband out into battle with the, um, uh, <clears throat> the prospect of ultimately being killed to sort of clean up the mess. And then um, after that, uh, Nathan, who's a prophet, comes to David. Uh, and this is what happens. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock of the herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. And then skipping over some portion, David later says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And so what happens, you, you know, David at this time is the king, and um, uh, Nathan uh, c knows that he needs to come to him and uh, convict him that what he's done is wrong. And he realizes, as it seems with the story, that, you know, I could come out of the gates and say, what you've done is terrible. And this is the king who's probably, therefore, going to cut my head off if I do that. So instead, what he does is he tells a story. Um, and the story is sort of a backdoor to convict uh, um, David that what he has done is wrong, and uh, he admits it himself, um, so that the, the message is able to, to penetrate not only his mind, but his heart. And I bring this up as a biblical sort of model for um, something that I think is uh, effective for evangelism. Um, and... Uh, Often, when we think about evangelism, communicating the Christian message to those specifically who do not believe it, yet I also believe that 
uh, even to Christians, there are places of our hearts that are unevangelized territory. So uh, even we need to hear the message just as uh, David did. Uh, often when we, we try to communicate the message, it just doesn't come across. Have you ever been in that scenario before where you're trying to talk to someone about something and it just seems to, to not, uh, you know, it's clear in your mind, uh, but it's not, uh, it's not convicting the person. And uh, so what happens is that we've got here uh, a failure to communicate. Um, this is from Cool Hand Luke, if you've seen it, where the warden uh, says of... Uh, Paul Newman's character, uh, some men uh, you just can't reach. You just can't reach. And the thing, of course, with the warden is he's trying to go the direct route. I mean, so direct that he's, he's got this baton that he's just hit him with it. You know, <laughs> let's get it across. Let's keep hitting him over the head. Um, and often when we're evangelizing, we feel kind of like that. You know, we're trying to hit them over the head with the, the gospel stick, and it's just not uh, getting across. Um, there is a hero, though, of evangelism, at least of mine. And I should say that, you know, what I'm talking about here today is a approach. It's not the approach. Sometimes the direct route works, especially maybe with someone who has the categories, was raised in the church and has left, and um, they understand what you're talking about. But for a lot of people, it doesn't. And uh, there's a, a hero in my life uh, named Robert L. Short, who died uh, six years ago, um, and uh, that's him. And, you know, believe it or not, like back in the, I think even in the late 50s, but from the, the 60s at least until about the time of his death, he kind of went around giving slideshows like this, um, uh, and, and talking about um, art, specifically uh, popular art with respect to the, the Christian message. And he's most famous for writing... Uh, this book, The Gospel According to Peanuts, and that, this is the, the newer cover, and that's the original uh, cover there up on the screen, uh, which I do have a, <clears throat> a copy of the original that I kind of protect. This is the one that I bring out. Um, uh, and what he's done in that book is, uh, if, you, if you just thumb through it, you see it's got pictures. It's a picture book. I mean, it's got the comics in it. Uh, but it's actually a serious piece of theology. Um, you know, he quotes people like Martin Luther and Soren Kierkegaard, uh, Karl Barth, the Bible, um, uh, and uh, uh, he'll, you know, he'll make a, a really valid point, and then he'll show, you know, something like this, uh, uh, this uh, comic right next to it without even sometimes explaining it. It just makes the point uh, uh, in a way that uh, solidifies the message. Uh, much more so than it, he would have without it. Um, and that book was really important to me because it actually was like the deal breaker in my life uh, for coming to Christian faith. I'd spent maybe about seven years reading the Bible, books of theology, and, and you know I, I thought it was interesting, but nothing was getting across until this book uh, touched my heart. And the funny thing is, actually, it's almost like uh, I didn't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear the very first chapter, which is called The Church and the Arts. And the first uh, 20 some odd pages, he lays out a case for what he's doing. And here I was, like just the beginning of the book, he's laying out the case for what he's doing. That, you would have thought that, that would have been enough for me to just put it down. Like, I don't want to be convicted of this message. And yet, when I've come back to this book later in life, it's leading a, a second life for me, 
that chapter has been, uh, I just keep coming back to it. It's been a really handy framework um, for uh, what you might consider a, sort of a, a, maybe a new, but really it's an old strategy of evangelism, as you've seen with someone like Nathan, uh, using uh, story and art to help communicate the message. And this is what he's, he sort of, he raises the problem on page one, uh, where he says the church needs to reexamine I'm going to just apologize at the beginning because there's going to be a lot of me reading. Um, I'll talk and read, talk and read, and I don't usually do that, but <clears throat> what he's write, written in here is so good that uh, there, I, I don't want to just sort of paraphrase it. I, I put in ellipses where I cut some things out, but I really want to get across what he's talking about here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read at you a bit, okay? But so it's up there on the screen. You all can see it. So he says, here's the problem. And this is in 1965. This is 50 years ago when this book came out, by the way. And I read it, and I think, golly, this first chapter, isn't, it's not dated. <clears throat> I mean, you could almost read it and think, uh, someone wrote it in 2015. Um, the church needs to reexamine its strategy of communication uh, to all men at all times, since the objection all men have to the church's message is fundamentally the same. It is that universal hardness of heart lying far more deeply and steadfastly within them than any objection man can usually hold consciously. Paradoxically, however, it is often the urgency the church has for its message that brings the church's proclamation running up against so many brick walls. And just so you can see what he does, he'll, he'll say something like that in the book, and then he'll put this right next to it. Charlie Brown says, believe in me, believe in me. Believe in me. I just can't get people to believe in me. Um, almost as an illustration of what, uh, you know, believe in God, believe in, believe in Jesus Christ, to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't get people to believe in the triune God and the saving work of Jesus Christ and the blood of his cro cross and uh, his resurrection on the third day for eternal life. You know, you could say that all you want, but it seems to be like I'm just going to sit on the curb and say, I just can't get people to believe it, no matter, I just uh, turn blue, blue saying this. Um, and so that's the problem. Um, and uh, he uh, then quotes as a framework Soren Kierkegaard, who is a philosopher, um, long dead now, I think 1700, 1800s, um, wrote this. If, uh, one is to lift up the whole age, one must truly know it. That is why those ministers of Christianity who begin once with orthodoxy have so little effect and only on a few. One must begin with paganism. If one begins immediately with Christianity, then they say, that is nothing for us, and they are immediately on their guard. And now, just to just so. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I don't think that we ought to be communicating uh, other beliefs as the, the gospel, but he's saying the starting place almost has to be where people already are, what they, what they believe in, and their gods and idols. Um, and so this is then Robert Short sort of giving uh, a little a meat to what Søren Kierkegaard has said. Um, the... the uh, you know, you all know the Peanuts characters. I'm, I'm just assuming you're well familiar with like Charlie Brown's the main character, uh, Linus, uh, and Linus is the guy who often has the blanket, and his sister Lucy is like a really angry person. 
um, often the, the sort of embodiment of evil. Um, uh, they, they're all kind of like caricatures for different uh, type, sort of tropes of people in the world. Um, far too often, so this is Rob, back to Robert Elshort, um, kind of explaining uh, what, uh, what Søren Kierkegaard has said. Far too often the church finds itself in the trap of attempting to explain its position in a language that is itself not meaningful. When Linus asks his mother why he cannot slug Lucy, who has taken his book of stories, his mother answers, that's just one of those things I can't explain. But Lucy has an explanation. Listen, dope, she tells Linus with her fist in his face. If you slug me, I'll slug you right back. Never mind, Mom, says Linus after silently watching Lucy turn and walk away with his book. It's just been explained to me in a language I can understand. <laughs> the church's missionaries to its cultured despisers need to be as well acquainted with the current languages of culture as the church's missionaries to foreign lands are acquainted with the languages of those areas into which they are sent. So that last sentence is kind of a, a lot to unpack. What he's saying is um, there's, there's almost there's a language of culture out there, a current language that's out there in the ether, whether you like it or not, uh, not in f just not foreign lands. I mean, like right here in Birmingham, Alabama, the United States of America, Western civilization. Uh, and just as much as like a missionary going to a foreign country to share the gospel needs to understand the language and culture of that place uh, in order for uh, he or she to eventually share the good news of Jesus Christ, he's saying that Christians need to be just as familiar in their own uh, Place wherever they're situated with uh, what's going on in the world to to communicate uh, the good news. And so to to say a little bit more about that, this is uh, where my uh, title for today uh, comes. If you read it, and maybe you didn't read it, but if you read it in the bulletin, I called it "Conversation Pieces: Evangelism According to Robert L. Short." And uh, that probably made absolutely no sense to you, and now it does, or it will. Um, this is uh, bringing in uh, the language of art. And you could, when, when he says art, of course, you know, here he's using uh, peanuts. I mean, just as peanuts still is today, but back in 1965 was art or popular art. There are things out there uh, today that we could wrestle with. Anything from fine art to lowbrow to everything in between, really. Um, broadly speaking, that could include commercials, TV shows, movies, uh, popular music, uh, literature. You know, here I hear, uh, um, oh, golly, what, uh, what's that guy's name, the Southern author who's really popular? Um, Wendell Berry. I hear his name like every week uh, here in the South. I'd never heard of him until probably until I moved to, to the South. Um, you know, things like that. Um, so conversation pieces. Therefore, it is there, uh, if there is some truth in, in art, and it must follow as the night the day that the greater the art, the more truthful it will be that the Christian observer can point to. He can then, uh, by this means, speak a word to his brother who might not be willing to listen in any other way. The artist then is like the man who is uh, willing to speak in strange tongues, to use Paul's language. The ability to speak in tongues Paul saw as one of the great gifts of the Spirit within the church. For to one was given one gift, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, and so on. 
But as Paul also pointed out, no one will be able to understand these tongues if there is no one to interpret. Thus, the church, rather than always being annoyed by the arts, should encourage a vanguard of men and women to be interpreters of these strange tongues or arts, which can act as truly provocative conversation pieces between the church and culture in which the church finds itself. And so, the, the, you know, a couple important points there. One is that what I'm saying is actually, um, in certain corners of uh, Christianity, a lot of people would just be walking out of the room right now based on what I'm saying. The, the, what, uh, in, in order to engage with popular arts, uh, you, that, that's problematic. Uh, that's too worldly. That um, is the base. Um, we should keep it at arm's distance or even further, um, lest we be sort of corrupted by it. Uh, and uh, so he's pointing that out, that the church has done that, at least in the last uh, couple of centuries, um, uh, at risk of it sort of uh, causing us to sin uh, even with greater depth. But instead, what someone like Robert L. Short is saying is, no, we need to wrestle with those very things uh, in order to make them conversation pieces, sort of like topics for conversation, about which, like, you and I can talk about that thing rather than out of the gates me coming at you with, uh, the, with the message of, of God and Christ. And so instead we start here and talk about that, that, you know, did you read that article in the New Yorker? Did you see that uh, commercial during the Super Bowl? And then eventually, hopefully, it might lead to themes of faith. That, and, and at that point, uh, the person might be willing to listen. Um, hopefully. And that, the, the idea of, you know, conversation pieces comes from the, the sort of, uh, you know, this is like the salon in Paris. Like, that's what people did. Um, they, would, they would hang out and talk about not only the art hanging on the wall, but latest trends in philosophy or what have you. And so that, you know, is a, a long time ago, and now it might look like this. It might look like something from Portlandia. Um, some hipsters hanging out in a cafe. Um, that's a funny sketch, if you haven't seen it, by the way, where they talk about, did you read it? Did you, re did you read that article in the New Yorker? Did you read, uh, did you read such and such? And it becomes this sort of like one-upmanship until they like explode, basically. <laughs> um, so if you, Portlandia might not be a, a great show for you to watch if you're easily offended, but this sketch in particular, just look it up. Did you read it? Um, they're actually, they're talking about things that they've read. I mean, this is what people do. Um, and uh, so conversation pieces. Um, again, going back to the idea, though, that uh, the, the church has um, uh, typically, at least uh, recently, um, especially in the United States, um, not wanted to do that. Uh, and so what he says here is that historically, however, the church has been impatient with the arts, just as many of Christ's detractors were impatient with his parables and indirectness. The same impatience has often caused the church's strategy to be simply one of turning up the volume. Do you remember uh, Spinal Tap? Turn it up to 11, you know? Do you remember that? Like the, 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 the dial ends at 10, and he says, this one has 11. Um, <laughs> the, the, that's the church. It's often uh, turning up the volume whenever it has felt that its uh, message was not being heard. In its zeal to get a hearing, the church has usually been addicted to the hard shell approach, uh, forgetting that the greater part of the approach of Christ uh, to winning men was decidedly quiet and indirect. And continuing, 
It was to remold partly through a very human kind of love. For human love is not only analogous to the benevolence of God's love, but human love also can break a man's heart, thus making it possible for the originally hard but empty shell of a man's heart then to be receptive in depth to God's love. This is why the Bible often speaks in a sort of love your enemies, it'll kill them sense. Uh, I, I was in an argument with a, a friend of mine who, um, you know, this was many years ago, I, shortly after I'd come to faith, and, um, uh, and shortly after I came to faith, I started working in ministry. So for a lot of my friends and family, that was just like, people thought I was going through a phase, that I was crazy. Um, uh, and a, a friend of mine who... Uh, is European, and, and all Europeans are atheists, um, um, especially in Western Europe. Um, he really did not like this news, and, um, and he was engaging me in an argument, and, and I, didn't, I knew that like, this was not going to end well. Actually, if we just kept arguing, our friendship would probably end is what would happen. Maybe I would win the argument, or he would, or we would each feel that way, even neither of us actually didn't win. And so instead, I just, uh, in the middle of it, I just gave him a hug, and I said, I love you, man. And he started laughing, and he said, I love you too, Matt. And we just ended it. We just ended it. It was the, the approach of what he's talking about here, the sort of indirect approach of love that actually breaks the heart and heart. It softens. It breaks it so much that it softens it. And going back to peanuts, I mean, that's often what Snoopy does, right? What does he often do? He often kisses people when they don't deserve it, you know, especially Lucy. And she hates it. 99% of the time, she hates it. But 1% of the time, she kind of likes it. Um, and if he can break through Lucy's barriers. Um, uh, and so uh, sort of along this theme, this is actually going back in the chapter a little bit because what I just read is later on, but I thought this is sort of pertinent to this idea of indirect communication and why you'd want to do that. He talks about sneaking around mental blocks. Remember that the problem is really, I mean, you have to think about if you believe in sin and that sin is an activity, that it's a condition that the human being is in, that all people are original sinners, that our sin nature is inside of us, how can we have much hope in communicating a, a, a message to another sinner, you know what I mean? And so the, the, the real problem isn't necessarily just about our approach to communication because direct communication is logical, it's rational. The, the, the problem with it is not understanding where the, the, the state of the heart of our fellow man and woman is. It's a place of hardness. And so to, in order to get there, you, you, you can't take always that direct approach. So he says art... Uh, just because of its subtlety and indirectness has a way of sneaking around the mental blocks and getting to the heart of the matter where it is capable of deeply and literally moving even the most immovable men and women. And maybe you've had that before. Anytime you've cried at a, a, a movie, you know, uh, especially like if it was really kind of silly, you, you were almost embarrassed by the fact that you were crying about this. That, that's what's going on. The, that piece of art somehow snuck around your mental block uh, and, and, and touched uh, your heart to get you to move to tears. And how great is that? Uh, I'm almost jealous because it hardly ever happens to me because I'm a stick in the mud. Um, uh, or I'm just embarrassed to cry. I don't know. It's probably both. But um, there you have it. 
So uh, what's happening here, actually, um, to use a piece of modern art, I'm, I, I talked to someone the other day. I mentioned Darth Vader in Star Wars, and this person was like in their 80s, and they said, who, what? <laughs> I was so, so baffled that this person at least hadn't heard. I'm assuming if you, have, if you haven't seen the movies, you've at least heard of Star Wars. Um, if you haven't, just do yourself a favor and rent them. Um, uh, but if you haven't seen the original Star Wars, there's this massive uh, spaceship called the Death Star. That's that big circle there. Do you all remember that if you saw it? It's like, the, it's like the size of a moon. I mean, even bigger. You know those, those things you see in magazines where they compare like the tallest buildings and it goes from you know, Empire State Building to the one in Dubai? This one would just be off the charts, right? I mean, this is the biggest construction that uh, mankind has ever produced. And it's the battleship of, it's not even a battleship, it's like a, a home base makeshift of the, the evil empire that uh, is the bad guys in the, the movie, the ones with the red lasers and the red lightsabers. So you know that they're bad, right? Um, and the, 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 the good guys want to destroy it. Uh, and they have these ships called the X-Wing Fighters, that's what that is up there. So that's the good guy with the X-Wing Fighter. And you could shoot at the uh, Death Star all day, uh, what they call proton torpedoes. <laughs> and it just would, like, you know, for all eternity, it would probably scrape it up a bit, you know? And you have to imagine that this is the human heart. Um, so what they decide to do, the rebel forces, the good guys, they realize, you see that line through the middle? That's called the equatorial trench, because it's the equator of this moon planet. And inside of the equatorial trench, there's this little hole called the, the exhaust port. And if you can get past all these other bad guys preventing you from getting close to the thing, down the equatorial trench, into the thermal exhaust port, into the middle, you could place one well-placed shot of a proton torpedo and hit it and blow up the whole thing. And that's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they do. That's what I think of evangelism. And so, <laughs> if you go in my office, I have a, a, a drawing of the Death Star with two X-Wing fighters going at it for the, the, the trench run to remind me that you've got to find the, the sort of back door, that you've got to find the thermal exhaust port to the human heart and, uh, and make the one well-placed shot. For example, um, uh, I, was in, I was with a friend of mine uh, who was really going through a, a really rough time uh, and, and you know, confiding me uh, how he's feeling and uh, a state of sort of depression. And we were sitting down at a bar and he knows I'm a Christian now and a minister, and, but we're, you know, we're talking. And uh, he, says, uh, he said, you know, just sort of philosophizing about a situation, he says, you know, um, someone once told me when my, my, my life is a mess to clean up my room, uh, to, to tidy up, uh, that, that if my internal state is uh, problematic, that I should tidy up my house. And so I said to him, you know, I find it really difficult when I'm in that uh, state to clean my room on my own, that I need a little bit of help. And I started talking to him for about a half hour about the show called Hoarding 
Buried Alive. Have you ever seen it? There, there's another one called Hoarders that's a lot like it, where they have these people who are hoarders, and their, their, their house is an absolute disgusting mess. And, uh, and, and 90% of the time it fails. 90% of the time it fails. Uh, but what happens is they have uh, uh, three people involved. There's the, well, the, well, four people. There's the hoarder. There are family members or some close loved one or friend. There's an organization expert of some capacity and some sort of therapist who has expertise in working with people with addictions, specifically hoarding. And if any of those three categories of people who are trying to help them are judgmental and are like, you need to get it together, buddy. Uh, why can't we just clean this up? I'm going to bring a dumpster down here and we're going to throw it all out. It fails. It absolutely fails. I'm telling my friend this at a bar, right? Uh, but um, sometimes there's a really, uh, it, it works out because the, the family member actually cares. And there's no judgment involved. And they help them clean up. And the organization expert is actually really good at this. Uh, and the therapists, usually the therapists are the best ones because they get how people work, especially those who are addiction counselors. And having this whole conversation, my friend is totally with it and for like an hour. And at the end, I said, I just want to let you know I'm talking about Jesus Christ. That's all I said. And he said, yeah, I kind of figured that since you're a, a, a minister. <laughs> but could you imagine if in the beginning I said, what you really need is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He would have left the bar and the conversation would have ended. Um, so that's an example of the sort of trench run approach. Uh, Remember, this is a approach, it's not the approach, but I found it to work. Um, and so let me give a caveat, and then I'll open it up to discussion for about 10 minutes. That uh, Back to um, Robert L. Short wrote another book called Something to Believe In. He wrote a bunch of other books, they're all up here. Something to Believe In is Kurt Vonnegut, The Exorcist of Jesus Christ Superstar. So you can see he was really into this stuff. This one is a little more dated feeling because nobody really knows who Kurt Vonnegut is anymore, but at the time, you know, at the time, uh, everybody knew who he was. But in the beginning of that chapter, he's a, uh, beginning of that book, he has a chapter that's also like the one in the Gospel According to Peanuts, where he gives the sort of the, the groundwork for what he's doing. And he gives some caveats of three categories of people. Um, and he says, uh, when it comes to communicating, the church has this problem. Its theologians or thinkers aren't good popular, popularizers and its popularizers aren't good theologians. Uh, these two only get in each other's way. Now, it doesn't sound familiar. I mean, this was uh, the 1970s, uh, but uh, you could say the same thing these days, that those who, I'm not just showing you like Star Wars to just be a popularizer. I'm trying to actually be a good theologian. I'm trying to find myself in the beginning of these two problematic categories that often the, the, the theologians are what he calls theobor theologian. Uh, Theobor, theologian, only speaks to other theologians and in a sort of impenetrable code. This makes it even easier for the world to ignore Theobor's monologue and go on to more interesting conversations. I mean, maybe you've found yourself on either end of that conversation before. And it might not even have been about theology. It might have been about politics or, um, or something else. On the flip side is what he calls pat popcorn. <laughs> You can see how this book's a little more dated, right, than the, the Gospel According to Peanuts. 
But both Theobor Theologian and Pat Popcorn use a lot of words, words, words. But while Theobor uses a mystifying academic jargon, Pat Popcorn prefers a with it gibberish and slang. Uh, we have all met Pat Popcorns. And then he shows this um, comic, uh, this cartoon from The New Yorker in 1972. And this is the priest talking. Like, man, you know, I mean, like, you know, wow. <laughs> so he made that statement, and then he shows the, the New Yorker cartoon. I mean, that's not getting anything across, right? But it sounds, you know, he sounds hip. He sounds with it. And then the third category he says he calls Renee Relevant. Uh, Pat Popcorn has a close cousin, Renee Relevant. Uh, these two have decided to be relevant at all costs, even at the cost of thinking or uh, of any other kind of work that requires silence. Usually they believe that if you love God with all your heart, jump for joy, smile a lot, and just keep praising the Lord relevantly, that should just about do it. And I mean, that's, that's big these days. We often see it, uh, I hate to say it, the place is really close to my heart is with Christian music, because there's some great stuff out there, but there's some things that are just trying to be relevant. There's a whole magazine called Relevant Magazine, a Christian magazine, which actually is a little bit decent. It's not the best thing out there, but it tries to engage with popular culture, but it's called Relevant for a reason. Um, it's trying to be relevant. And sometimes that has, uh, you, what happens is the, 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 the message actually gets muddled. Uh, at the end of the day, you can talk about art, but the message of the gospel has to be the same. Uh, and you can slice it any way you want to be relevant across the continuum. Let me end with just another piece of uh, scripture. Uh, and here is someone else doing somewhat, something quite similar to all that I've talked about. This is Paul in Athens. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, uh, may we uh, know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived, in the, uh, lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he goes on to share the Christian faith. And so you can see that even Paul was doing this. Uh, sometimes he would go to the synagogues and speak directly because they understood the theology. But sometimes he'd go to the, 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 the city square and engage with the, the, those who were philosophizing, just like our, our friends in the Portlandia episode. And so I thought about, you know, just as an example of what a conversation piece could be in 2015 and this week in July, uh, you know, what is the sort of the altar of the unknown God now? You know, if Paul kind of came here and was walking around to talk to us, and there's this photo essay that came out last week in the Huffington Post, where it's, it's so depressing. It's like 25 pictures like this of people just, you know. <laughs> uh, and that's the de that was um, uh, St. Augustine's definition of original sin was, like navel gazing and um, and so I don't know I mean you could kind of have a conversation around this with with someone these and, and next week it'll be something else you know or, or next year um, we have a few minutes for questions or uh, conversation I just uh, in May 
had an amazing experience, unexpectedly amazing, a visit to Russia. What you made me think of and mentioning the arts was the revival of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh -huh. which is absolutely astounding. Yeah. Filled with incredible art. And the churches themselves being major works of art. Right. And I think there must be a connection because my feeling was that now that this is the first time in Russia's history that the people have ever had a chance to say anything have come back perhaps feeling empty and that's a chance to be refilled. Yeah, it was I, a wonderful thing to observe. Yeah, I'd hope so. I mean, with the current climate in Russia, that could go the other way, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, they if you ever go to an Orthodox church, and there are some here in town, uh, it might be like this. I haven't been to any here, but uh, maybe you've been to one. They're just filled with vibrancy and color. And our, it's the opposite of um, the iconoclastic sort of Protestant uh, approach, which I think was actually a problem. Um, I, under, I understand the underlying sort of feelings that the iconoclastic folks had that this could be idolatry, but then what we had is this sort of blank, austere, uh, you know, architecture that wasn't communicating in the way that the Orthodox, church, Orthodox churches try to do so beautifully. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Uh, kind of question along the same lines. Where do we see, if you look historically, where did the church um, begin to abandon the arts or abandon the culture? Where, how did we get to where we are? Is that an American phenomenon? Is that further back? Yeah, both and. Um, you know, you can, uh, again, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of this came out of the, the Protestant Reformation. Um, some uh, extreme reformers, um, going to that extreme of, uh, actually, it, it, Luther didn't want to see this happen, but there were some folks in Luther's Germany who were destroying beautiful pieces of artwork in their own churches, and it, it led him to uh, great uh, uh, depression and anger that, you know, that's taken it too far. That's not what I'm saying. And so you could trace it back to that, and um, there are movements even in uh, Roman Catholicism that, that, that tried to do this. There's a there's a church in uh, Vir Virginia City, Nevada, which is a ghost town. Uh, now, I mean, there's, there's a little bit going on there, but it's, uh, it's kind of a ghost town. Basically, it was a silver mining town, and there were a group of Roman Catholic monks who were iconoclasts for similar reasons, and they came to that conclusion uh, for different reasons, but uh, they, they whitewashed their, their church. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, it's right there in the Ten Commandments, um, you know, and... Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, especially with the, the Reformation and the extreme reformers, but people come to that conclusion different routes over, over the course of time. David. I guess right off the bat, when it said you have to be willing to admit you're wrong or to confess that you are a sinner, and then the, uh, we think we have the right to be offended of, about anything, and I don't, I don't think we have a right to be offended of of anything, but that today in the culture, it just seems like our major problem is we think we have a right to be offended. Sure, yeah, people are easily offended. Uh, um, perhaps uh, it would help to um, be patient with some works of art to allow them to be conversation pieces for whatever reason. Yeah, let's do one last question. Oh, this 
I'm not sure where this fits in, but it has to do with art, it has to do with the church, and it's somewhat controversial, and it has to do with this very minute. Uh, the Dean of National Cathedral has said he will have two of the stained glass windows from National Cathedral removed because in each of them it deals with the Confederacy and there's a Confederate flag in the, in the windows. Wow. I don't even know how to answer that question. I, exactly. I don't, it's not even a question, but yeah, uh, if you, yeah, it's, um, there are probably things here in our own building that if you took a, a magnifying glass and went around that we could be offended by because of, um, of, of history. And that's a great question. Should we leave it up there? Because, uh, you know, that was the way that this building was built and we're respecting it, or do we change it uh, because of the, the times that we're in and new conclusions that we've come to. Um, that's a conversation piece and a class in and of itself. Um, well, let's wrap it up with that. Uh, of course, everything that I teach is to be continued. There'll be something along these lines in the future, I'm sure. Thank you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you.